events we've just you know had recently the nepal and that continues what's happening in nepal the recovery process with aftershocks more earthquakes uh it, it, it's been a terrible terrible time for that country and for those people uh, back on april the 25th a magnitude of 7.8 claiming uh, around 8000 but that number's probably more closer to 10000 and it continues of course there have been aftershocks since april the 25th so not only nepal though when you look across the globe at countries that are susceptible are vulnerable to natural disasters how does that affect the culture what gets lost through the culture we'll be sharing some stories with you from nepal about some of the cultural heritage that has been lost in the devastation as a result of the earthquakes um so how culture comes under threat and how diverse populations deal with it come together to help the recovery process Um, in a jumbled layer of pebbles and shells called the dog's breakfast deposit lies evidence of a massive tsunami one of two that transformed new zealand's maori people in the 15th century and a country vulnerable to natural disasters japan has a word gaman which means quietly enduring difficult situations so Simon and i will be uh, exploring the culture the diversity and how that's affected or indeed contributes diversity contributes to these situations these events that are as a result of natural disasters i think the word preparation it's is key to not only the process but also the outcome of uh, confronting natural disasters. It is one of those inevitables of life, but of course uh, the way that it occurs, the diversity of natural disasters by itself, Suzanne, so avalanches, earthquakes, floods, forest fires, hurricanes, landslides, uh, volcanoes, tsunamis, tornadoes, um, are, if you think about it, each one of those would require a different sort of preparation, response, and the impact that it has not only on the people but also the economy and the infrastructure um, of the place that it does affect. Now I, uh, you know that I spent some time in California and it's interesting to see how people in different countries, because of the prevalence of, uh, an, you know, uh, pending or, you know, uh, the, the possibility of a natural disaster, uh, how often they may talk about it, uh, in what ways if there's, you know, certain notes or manuals in their homes. So when I rented a home, there was a manual in that house about the things that I should have, what I should do in the event of an earthquake because that's what you know tends to happen in California and well it's susceptible isn't it it's, it's a vulnerable yes. uh, part of the world to uh, such a thing like an, an earthquake that's right there's a fault there across um, in that region so geographically there are certain places that may be more susceptible to certain natural disasters and um, the way one prepares for it is is important but really nothing uh, prepares you when it does happen and I was in uh, in an earthquake that measured about 7.2 on the Richter scale. Uh, I was with my brother at the time and you really realize who are your friends and who are not because uh, my brother was very careful to make sure that he checked on everyone during the earthquake and instructed everyone and then you see other people react in ways that are more uh, self-concerned right? you yes, know and yes. they may not be that worried about other people uh, but it really is no it's 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 shocking mm. and um, it does shake you up for a certain amount of time so the ripple effect of the aftershock is not only physical mm. it's psychological as well 
Have you witnessed something? Uh, maybe you were in Nepal or you have been helping and assisting in Nepal or maybe Sri Lanka when you think of 2004 tsunami. There I remember going on holiday, I have to be honest, and this was only about two, two years ago. Didn't think about the tsunami of 2004. It was only when I was taking a trip out from where I was staying and I went into a town and I saw graves mm. along the, uh, just up from the main road, so really prevalent. And then I realize oh my goodness this had been hit massively by the 2004 tsunami and you have a thought you think you consider and you think of those people that live in these communities and how it affected them Um, what I learned about that and for you my Sri Lankan listeners please let us know your experiences of this but uh I learned from that was it, the tsunami hit on a holiday time. We know it happened uh, for Christians just after Christmas, but not only that, for the people living there in Sri Lanka, many people had come down from the hills down to the coast because it was a holiday day. Mm. And so, uh, you know, it's tragic in any situation. Absolutely. It's a loss of life or a family member. But, you know, it's that, you know, you always think about what if and timing and, you know, fate and it's that moment and what devastation it can cause. And how lives are impacted and, mm. and, and the cultures are impacted um, indefinitely. Just to mention, of course, and needs to be highlighted with the ship disaster uh, coming out of China, the death toll from the Chinese ferry disaster now stands at 396. Uh, the authorities say uh, the emergency workers are still uh, looking at recovering bodies. Um, the ship, the Eastern Star, capsized in a storm last Monday and was turned upright in an operation on Friday. Just 14 of the 456 passengers and crew are known to have survived. More than 40 are still missing. The tragedy looks set to be China's worst shipping disaster in more than 60 years of communist rule. And it's interesting looking at some of the research and... uh, documents and articles that are written on natural disaster summine and one that you brought to my attention here culture has a big impact on disasters how we prepare for them how we respond to them even even how we could prevent them in fact some social scientists who study disasters say they're a result of culture what happens when natural forces or human error come crashing into existing social systems uh, nothing is a disaster until it intersects with a specific society that has vulnerabilities that are the result of decisions made made over decades. Very powerful. And um, if you notice through that uh, introduction uh, and summary, that's included uh, social issues, is included, you know, psychological issues, political issues, as well as entire uh, community welfare issues of reaction and response. Now, the World Risk Report of 2012 very nicely has compiled this uh, incredibly important information because the more we study uh, natural disasters and their occurrence in diverse cultures, the more we can understand about um, preparation as well as uh, recovery recovery and resistance, excuse me, resilience, you know, to make sure how we adapt and recover from things that have happened. So, for example, how susceptible a country is depends very much on things like public infrastructure, on nutrition, on income, and the general economic framework that makes up that country. So, for example, to put it into context, uh, North America uh, may be very low in susceptibility because they're strong on these variables. Uh, But that doesn't mean that they don't suffer from or that natural disasters don't occur in those countries. 
Um, on on the other hand, for example, we've got so uh, g- countries in Africa are very high in susceptibility because unfortunately such an infrastructure is not strong enough for them. So the impact on them, on people, on culture uh, will be much more long lasting. Uh, lack of coping capacities, for example, needs to be taken into account. Lack of adaptive uh, capacities need to be taken into account, but also how exposed and vulnerable um, countries are to natural disasters. So the World Risk Index takes this all into account and looks at what is it that we can learn uh, because you cannot prevent natural disasters, uh, but you can prepare for them. And the way that we respond will very much determine the outcome of uh, how we you know, get on with our lives and repair after which it has occurred. So both in terms of infrastructure and, and humans. Yeah. And it's, it, it, and it's what we can learn from those given situations and countries. Um, Japan living with disasters. What can the world learn from the nation's ability to accept natural disasters as a normal part of life? You were saying when you lived in California, the threat was there of a uh, possibility of an earthquake and you lived with it. There were manuals in the houses. You had a certain amount of awareness. You knew what you needed to do to prepare or indeed in the event of an earthquake. So how is that living in a place where you know that you're susceptible, even if the chances may still be slim, but the chances are higher than living in other parts of the world? Um, here by Tom Huang about Japan, uh, he says a master narrative has developed around the media's coverage of Japan's earthquake, tsunami and nuclear disaster, uh, leading us to believe that there are cultural roots in the Japanese citizen's stoic response to all the horrors of the past few weeks. This is coming out of the end of 2014. Mm-hmm. So in the Science Monitor, Gavin Blair writes, amid all the destruction, shortages and despair, one thing stands out, the character of the Japanese people, which remains almost unflinchingly respectful, honest and conscientious through these darkest of times. It's absolutely fascinating. And, uh, you know, there's always been stories that will come out of Japan about the quality of their response, the the, the style of their response, this sort of silent acceptance and just getting on with things and focusing on uh, keeping one's emotional intelligence, especially and using one's emotional intelligence to try and confront this very, very challenging Mm. thing that they've been through. Yes. In Canada's National Post, Catherine Blaze Carson describes how lines for water and fuel are single file. Shoes are neatly arranged in the shelters. There have been no reports of looting as there were in the earthquake ravaged Haiti or uh, other like after Hurricane Katrina or in a flood riddled England in 2007. So interesting the observations that are made about a community, a society's behavior and response in such cases. Yeah, and there's something special about the Japanese people and their culture. It's not just about their resilience as the article goes on to say, but also their attention to style and detail, their spirituality, and their strange juxtaposition of modern and traditional. And they say that in the Japanese culture there's a sort of nobility in suffering with a stiff upper lip uh, and a mustering the spiritual psychological resources internally. So there's even a word for 
quietly enduring difficult situations and you as you mentioned earlier and that's gaman now from a cross-cultural perspective uh, there is a phenomena known as locus of control and locus of control and loci of control where we place locus of control in situations that we confront uh, apparently varies not only between personalities but amongst cultures so for example if something happens to me uh, I have on the continuum of why that has happened I can think about it was my responsibility or perhaps it was meant to be it was fate it was destiny and so people with an internal locus of control uh, they place more responsibility on themselves people with an external lotus locus of control will bl- blame external factors The Japanese culture, by and large, have an external loci of control, especially in relation to these type of natural disaster situations and responses. So they don't remain stuck in why has this happened to me. There isn't this victimization or personalization. Uh, They understand that it it has happened, and they're quick to go into solution orientation rather than focusing on why it has happened to them. Samane and I are in discussion looking at diversity and natural disasters. Defining disaster, that could be anything from flood, drought, it could be earthquake, it could be avalanche, it could be or it could be tsunami or manner of events that That's happen right. to do with our planet that affect the culture of the people that reside there. And it makes you think, would you live in a place that you knew had uh, a vulnerability that was susceptible to certain disasters? The immediate thing after disaster is safety of life, water, medicine, food, shelter. And then you start to look and pull back and see another side to what's been affected, which is their heritage and culture, their spirituality, temples that have been lost, artifacts that have been lost, things that tell a story about a culture and how it affects the people living there. And I was sharing with you at the beginning of the hour, uh, the dog's breakfast deposit, which is a jumbled layer of pebbles and shells. And that's the name of these pebbles. And it's in New Zealand. And it's evidence of the massive tsunami one of two that transformed New Zealand's Maori people in the 15th century so that's how much culture is impacted by a disaster so after the killer wave destroyed food resources and coastal settlements sweeping societal changes emerged including the building of 45 hill forts called Pa and a shift towards a warrior culture uh, this is called patch protection wanting to guard what little resources you've got left ultimately it led to a far more warlike society according to James Goff a tsunami geologist at the University of New South Wales in Australia It is absolutely just fascinating. Um, And I couldn't agree with you more, Suzanne, when you said, of course, the devastation and damage on lives and property uh, and health and well-being is is paramount. It's the first thing, it's central to what needs to be considered. But, you know, when you think about country and culture, uh, the absence of culture, of what we associate with certain places, when it's absent, that in itself is a long-term bruise or reminder of what people have gone through. Mm. We may recover psychologically ecologically you know and we may re- recover in terms of coping mechanisms and things but you know when something's been damaged and devastated or absent that by itself is a permanent mark isn't it and then how as a culture you 
evolve and change as a consequence of that happening. So becoming more protective of the little that you have, being described as more warlike, mm-hmm. um, respecting the earth and its precious commodities all the more because it like that could be gone right. and, and lost to you. That's right. And, and to come up with ways of preserving. So there are United Nations organizations that devote their, their time and energy resources and everything, you know, they're about is to identify what these spectacular cultural um, sites are or, or artifacts and how, what they can do to try and preserve them, especially if they're more susceptible to natural disasters. Well, on April the 25th, Nepal was struck by an earthquake and the magnitude of 7.8 and claiming around 8,000, more likely to be 10,000 lives. And there have been aftershocks. There's been earthquakes since that date. Uh, It was a massive earthquake and Nepal has been overwhelmed by the unfolding humanitarian crisis as well as a culture crisis. Home to a rich heritage of art and architecture, the mountainous remote countries suffered significant damage to its many temples and historic sites. And listen here as Geoffrey Brown reports on how the physical destruction has deeper deeper implications for Nepal's people. This is a report from PBS News. Thousands of Nepalese gathered today for prayer, ritual and ceremony, marking the end of a traditional Hindu mourning period held after the massive earthquake. The death toll has grown to more than 7,800 people. Another 15,000 have been injured. Engineers are continuing to inspect thousands of damaged houses around Kathmandu. The earthquake also wrought considerable destruction and damage to religious, cultural and heritage sites throughout the region. Jeffrey Brown reports on that, part of his ongoing work on culture at risk. The cremation of bodies continued this week in Kathmandu. As officials warned, the death toll from the 7.8 magnitude earthquake could hit 10,000. Meanwhile, aid workers have struggled to reach remote areas, hampered by customs delays, closed roads, and difficult terrain. And villagers have grown frustrated by the pace and amount of relief getting to them. It is so little. What can one do with this? Some have 15 to 20 people in their families. How long will it last? It won't last. The humanitarian crisis, the loss of lives, the need for food, shelter and medicine has been devastating in this mountainous country that is one of the world's poorest. At the same time, another kind of crisis has also unfolded. This region once stood at the intersection of trade routes connecting India and China and became home to a rich heritage of art and architecture dating back many centuries. Today, many of those sites, such as Bhaktapur Square and Patan Durbar Square, both in the Kathmandu Valley, are badly damaged. There are many of the temples which uh, collapsed and also many of the uh, historical houses in which the families were were living uh, fell fell down. And in Bhaktapur there are streets where we even cannot go at the moment, so this is very uh, difficult to assess there. Christian Manhart is the director of the United Nations Office of Cultural Heritage in Kathmandu. And then Patan Durga Square, we also have, I, I, I must say, 50% of the temples have, have gone. They are just rubble now. But fortunately, the royal palace is still standing, ex- uh, except of one tower which is, which is leaning and which we have to uh, consolidate very quickly that it doesn't, that it doesn't fall, fall down. In the city, soldiers and volunteers work to clear bricks and debris from a Hindu temple. 
we love our temple very much so look at now what you get this and i want to have this temple very carefully and then other temple since the earthquake manhart's team has been working to assess the damage to the country's many temples and historic sites and there has been some good news the Lumbini Temple, for example, said to be the birthplace of the Buddha, was left unharmed. Nepal is home to four designated World Heritage Sites, two natural and two cultural. One site alone, the Kathmandu Valley, contains seven world-renowned groups of monuments and buildings. It's the largest concentration of World Heritage Sites you know, anywhere in the world, an absolutely unique in their style and in their mixture of Hindu and Buddhist and secular traditions. Deborah Diamond is curator of South and Southeast Asian art at the Smithsonian's Freer and Sackler Galleries in Washington, itself home to a Nepalese bodhisattva. These are bronze casters and wood carvers. were historically considered, you know, among the greatest artists of the region. And they not only worked in Nepal, but they were called to China and they worked in Tibet. So they were, they were understood as really important. It's a fact not lost on locals. After early reports of looting, Manhart says citizens, police, and the military have come together to protect the sites. These are not just relics from a bygone era, he and others point out, but living history that people interact with on a daily basis. That was on display this week in the capital, where even amid the destruction and loss of life, the Nepalese celebrated the Buddha's birthday. When I arrived in Nepal, I was really struck by the spirituality of the people, by this living uh, culture they still have. They go to the temple every morning to give some uh, offerings. Uh, each temple has its own festivals and uh, the people are very strongly connected and it's part of their daily lives. And what is the danger, of course, if the tangible uh, heritage, so the temples disappear, that then also the intangible heritage will will uh, disappear. And we're just listening there to the news report from America, PBS on Nepal, and of course the loss and trauma and tragedy of the recent events when it comes to natural disasters and the earthquake and quakes that have been hitting that country. But it also goes on to look at what could possibly be lost culturally when it comes to their heritage, their spirituality, the artifacts, and what binds and connects a people, a society, a culture. Even post-disaster. And one of the things that um, the gentleman was uh, responding to and, and reacting to was saying how wonderful that even post-disaster, uh, the notion of spirituality and continuing one's traditions and rituals uh, amidst destruction in Nepal uh, was something that stood out for him as well as the sort of rich heritage that dates back many centuries of course uh, the heritage that they spoke about um, and it's one of the largest concentration of world heritage sites in Nepal because of the rich influence of Hinduism and Buddhism that comes together Um, one thing that was very interesting here is that these are not just uh, heritage sites that are visited by tourists and that they're not attended to or visited, the locals interact with these sites on a daily basis. It's part of their cultural nuances and repertoire. And so um, it, it's, it's, it's living history that they interact with. And so um, w- 
when the tangible disappears, how is the intangible affected was his closing lines, mm. you know, that if I no longer have a place that I'm used to going on a daily basis to offer, um, you know, prayers and to engage in my traditions, what happens to those traditions? And do people of Nepal and in comparison to other cultures, would they then shift those and allow those traditions to evolve almost into uh, more appropriate or in ways that it's possible now because of the way that it used to be done mm. is no longer possible? Mm. Does it become gradually extinct? Uh, does it die out? Does it get diluted? Does it fade out? Does and it change and transform to something else? Right. Does it change and transform? And then when you are teaching, because, you know, a huge aspect of culture, Suzanne, is how it's transformed is and how it's transmitted from generation to generation. And with the presence of the tangible, it's almost hard. It turns into a mythological uh, transformation or transmitting. So, you so t- what your connection as a generation may have been to your parents or grandparents as the cultural landscape that you grow up in, that might alter from your connection with your children and grandchildren that are to come if those certain sculptures buildings squares temples mm-hmm. uh those those artifacts that are part of your history and culture and heritage have gone they're no longer visible they're no longer part of your daily landscape and routine absolutely and so you it's not that it would die out necessarily but you have a different relationship um with those traditions and and different exposure to it and so perhaps um the interaction may not be as frequent So it's just another way of considering what is affected by a natural disaster. And looking at Nepal, uh, what tourists can do to help not hinder Nepal's quake recovery. So every year, 800,000 international visitors travel to Nepal to experience its unique attractions, some of which we've discussed. Uh, These include the Sangamatha National Park, Mount Everest, of course, there, the Annapurna Trail, the Langtang Trekking Regions, Kathmandu Valley, uh, the UNESCO World Heritage Sites that have been uh, discussed already this morning. Tourism is critical to Nepal's economy. The World Travel and Tourism Council reports that the industry contributed 8.9% to Nepal's gross domestic product in 2014, supporting 1.1 million jobs. Before the earthquake, Nepal was the 26th fastest growing tourism economy out of 188 economies. So what impact will the earthquake have on tourism? Based on the Nepalese culture, uh, tourism and civil aviation ministry's tourism statistics, about 23,000 visitors would have been in the country on April the 25th. It's not yet known exactly how many tourists were among those who lost their lives in the earthquake. So how's that going to affect traffic to that part of the world in the future? But also tourist plans must include disaster being prepared for that possibility. That's something that's being acknowledged here. Tourist destinations are becoming increasingly aware of the devastating impacts that natural disasters can have on their industries. So organisations at all levels have begun to promote or develop tools to increase disaster preparedness and management of the sector. And it's something we can talk about with our guest David after 11 o'clock this morning, how his training here in the UAE when it comes to disaster response as individuals and as communities does that include us traveling and being aware of going into regions across the globe and how we need to be perhaps not only aware but prepared for such an event 
Certainly it would um, deter people from visiting and of course that's very, very sad and, and the impact on that country economically uh, is long term. But even even for you know tourists as well as communities, I think prevention is very, very important and the plan that we put into place to prepare has to be one that has been put together by experts like uh, the guests that we'll be talking to so that uh, we know what to do in yeah. accordance to where we're living and not don't get it wrong either because it could you know really have a such a negative impact if we don't know how to uh to to react or behave uh, accordingly one of the things that comes out of situations like this for me is always how and we're talking about diversity how human beings have a great ability to show empathy for someone somebody a culture a country that they have no connection with and we've we're seeing that in cases you know with 2004 the tsunami that hit thailand and um sri lanka we're seeing it with nepal and that's interesting from a cultural point of view what is that about from a cross-cultural point of view samine uh humanity we think it's all about where we come from and Mm. the tribe that we belong to yet we have this ability to feel for others even when they're very far away Mm. from us both culturally and geographically that's right um, I think you know across there's there's much across culture that's culturally relative, uh, but there are few things that are universal, um, if I may, uh, without underestimating what those are. And uh, things like birth and death are universal concepts. Uh, tragedy, disaster, despair, suffering. These are universal concepts. And when we're confronted by universal uh, concepts such as those that haven't been motivated or driven by the actions of certain people, but there are natural disasters, that in itself really wakes up a part of our compassion and empathy uh, to say that that could have been me because there is no certainty or predictability as much as we would like there to be. Of course, we have advanced tremendously in terms of understanding natural disasters of to when and how they occur um, in hopes of trying to prevent damage and And it's death. also that idea, I suppose, that, you know, uh, mother to mother, sister to sister, um, father to son to daughter, you relate to a fellow human being who may be a mother, a father, a sister, a brother, who's lost somebody suffering something yes, that's right and you're you want to do something to help and that it, that help is shown in all manner of ways and you know it's interesting with the uae mm. Yes, yeah, it is. And it's and it's what I was trying to say is that because it's unpredictable and uncertain and it's a natural disaster, that empathy, empathy and compassion wakes up even more. Um, the UAE is very, very active in terms of not only uh, providing aid in situations such as this, but the UAE is ranked world number one in foreign aid for the second year. And uh, the leaders of the UAE say that, like Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid points out, that this This is very much on the sort of nation's founding principles of making sure that we are part of the world fraternity and if we are developing and we're capable of helping that we would like to also contribute to the development of other people because this is absolutely and faithfully uh, following the footsteps of the late Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan al-Nahyan who believes in serving others as well as his himself and his family and his country. And where's that from, uh, Salmanay? This is from uh, Emirates 24-7 and also the National reported on this as well.